Welcome to Pedagodzilla, the pedagogic podcast with the pop culture core. This episode is the third and final part of the three-part miniseries we've jauntily titled Where's My Hoverboard? The Future of EdTech and Education. In the first episode, we looked at how predicting the future with the Jetsons is weird, and predicting the future of education is weirderer. In the second episode, we pulled apart some educational futures that didn't make it, and postulated our own futures that might just be the next big thing with Minority Report. And in this third and final episode, we'll be pulling in the expert opinion on what the future of education really is. Uh, There's a lot of voices in the field, but the one that we've chosen to focus on is the Innovating Pedagogy Report from the Open University. Tying it together with the question of the episode, Dave Lister, modern day Socrates, question mark. Can we apply the Innovating Pedagogy Report to Red Dwarf? Uh, Mark, you are from IET at the Open University who actually published the report. Can you do just a quick summary for us? Yeah, sure. It's been going for about 10 years, I think. Uh, Normally every year, they missed last year. So it's the IET at the Open University, and they always team up with an external institution. And between them, they, they brainstorm some ideas, and then they assign stuff, and they always come up with 10 predictions for what the next big things are or are going to be in the next few years. And it's not necessarily technology. Once in the 2019 report, they did something on spaced learning, which is do 20 minutes learning and then run around and do star jumps and then get down and do a bit more work. And people learn better that way. So it's a range of different things that are on the horizon or are just emerging. And it's usually a good guide to how up to date am I with what I'm doing in my practice? How many of these have already adopted? And it's a nice touchstone every year when these things come out, really. And it's, I find it quite sort of, don't want to say entertaining, but you know, it's it's quite, uh, the articles are well written. Yeah, It doesn't go on and on and on. It tends to be quite well summarized. Um, and it's interesting stuff. I think it's, it's a good read in general. Yeah, it's just about three pages on each one. And it's nice, clear stuff. And it's a good introduction. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, those the thing I knew most about the OU before I started at the OU were the innovating pedagogy reports, because everybody in e-learning, every time a new one came out, they just got passed around immediately because they were so useful. Um, so a bit of the show that I always forget to do is actually introducing myself and Mark. Um, so we should probably do that now, I suppose. Hello, I'm Mike Collins. I'm a learning designer with the Open University. I'm also imposter syndrome incarnate and a man with a microphone. And joining me as ever is... Hi, I'm Mark Childs. I'm um, my claim to fame. Apparently, my reason for being here is I've got a PhD in education. And a lovely speaking voice. And uh, a main obsession with all for things geeky really yes that's absolutely not why we do this it's, it's, always, <laughs> it's all business it's all business not the geeky stuff um so uh you may well be justified in asking where the sam heck is the pop culture in this particular episode of a podcast that's allegedly about pedagogy and pop culture uh, well hold your darn horses because innovating pedagogy is all very well and good but what about innovating comedy <laughs> very 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 hokey um what's the word transition no what's the word um, segway segway that's the sausage uh so what was by far the best future-based sitcom to ever grace the british telly box i'm not talking about hyperdrive which was good i'm not talking about Spaceballs, which wasn't on the telly and wasn't british mel brooks movie it's brilliant I'm talking about Red Dwarf, the formative comedy of my youth, uh, along with Black Adder, one of the best sitcoms of all time, uh, or at least certainly the first six series. And um, I would say the um, the recent revival has been up to form as well. 
I enjoyed seasons 10 and 11 as much as I enjoyed any of the first six. There's something about the fact they're all now middle-aged and there's something slightly more pathetic and slightly more sad about them that actually makes it work better as a comedy than it, it did earlier on. So, yeah, definitely worth a look. Okay, so um, I guess actually for those who don't know, what is Red Dwarf? So it is a cult, inverted commas, um, comedy series uh, from the BBC, which ran f- between 1988 and 1999 originally, uh, and then came back on Dave started working towards a revival um mark i don't know if you want to quickly summarize sort of what red dwarf is and the plot for us yeah sure it's um well for the best third best two thirds of the run it's about four guys stuck on a spaceship and slowly driving each other mad so uh, it's basically uh there's a mining craft and there's a disaster and everybody's killed on board this spaceship apart from uh, one guy who's the bottom of the 193 crew members or whoever member they were, um, apart from him and his pet cat. And he's in stasis for three million years. He comes out when the radiation levels have dropped. His cat has evolved into an entire species, and there's only one of those left. And so them and a hologram in the first two seasons and then uh, a, a robot in the third onward season form the, the core of the, 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 the four people who are left on board this spaceship. So it's in a lot of ways, it's a classic odd couple comedy in that there's two that they don't get on or some of them get on and some of them don't. Um, and there's also a computer that helps run the spaceship. And it's uh, all the things that they encounter as they're traveling back through space. So there's genetically engineered life forms, there's, there's chameleoids, there's all these sorts of things. So all these different science fiction themes but played for laughs and played for philosophy and with some really interesting science fiction concepts coming through as well. So yeah, it's funny. There's some really funny lines in it, funny writing, but also there's some really good science fiction concepts in it and some, you know, some interesting plots and all that sort of stuff. So it's, it's kind of got everything. And for a while, it was the highest rated TV show on the channel it was being showed on. Um, so it was, it got a lot of people, but yes, and it's also a cult because uh it's people are just it's, it's got like an international cult following as well hasn't it like it's um yeah. the british version uh got exported to the states and actually like got a, a weird rabid fan base attached to it yeah they even tried remaking it a couple of times and with yeah. and every american agrees that it's far inferior to the british version and the british version is really big so i think it's also i, I would argue one of the quintessential british comedies or at least exemplifies the best things about mm-hmm. british comedies in that everything revolves around everything being a little bit crap. So yes. the, the characters are all ever so slightly just fl- very, very flawed, venal people with few redeeming qualities, except for Lister, you know, who's, you know, good at heart, but basically a, a slob. The stories and the interactions about everything just always going a little bit wrong. There's never a particularly happy ending. And even the sets, the sets are just kind of bits of old washing machine and things put together, but because everything gels together so wonderfully and everything's got this wonderful pattern of crapness just kind of overlaying it, it just works and it's beautiful and so down to earth. Which again, like a lot of British comedy, it's about class. You know, one of the central characters is not is always trying to do better for himself and the, the other one isn't. And the comedy comes from trying to act above your station. And then there's uh, somebody that's, Crichton, the robot, is really deferential, obsequious, but then gradually kicks against it and kicks against his programming and becomes 
more autonomous and and more you know he tries to call Rimmer, who's the really obnoxious one, a smeghead, but the best he can get do is like the and the humor is puerile sometimes and it's it's you know it's bodily function based and things like that but it's really poignant as well at times and also bounces off some of these quite high concept science fiction ideas as well really as you can tell mark and i've barely watched it at all we just <laughs> well i've been binging on it this is why we picked <laughs> up on it is on a previous podcast both and i uh, liz and i discovered that we've been binging on red dwarf recently and so yeah so we thought okay red dwarf is the one we will base the next one on and here we are um okay so uh, anyway that's uh, that's red dwarf okay. um so um so this particular episode uh, as you might have been able to tell at this point, is born off the dual pressures of the fact that Mark and I really wanted to talk about the Innovating Pedagogy Report, <laughs> and we also really wanted to talk about Red Dwarf. So what we've done is we've challenged ourselves to answer the question, Dave Lister, modern-day Socrates? Question mark. Can we apply the 2020 Innovating Pedagogy Report to Red Dwarf? What we're going to be doing with that is we're going to pick a specific article each from the Innovating Pedagogy Report, because there's a heck of a lot in there, and then we're going to smash it into... Um, what we feel is an appropriate episode of Red Dwarf and just sort of see what happens. Essentially, it's an excuse to talk about Red Dwarf and the Innovating Pedagogy Report. Cool, let's do this then. Okay. Okay, so who's going first? Well, shall I go with one? Yeah, you go ahead. Okay, so there's quite, as I said, there's 10 different things in here and one of the ones I wanted to pick out, but it also I think it really ties in well with the whole Red Dwarf thing, is the idea of post-humanist perspectives on education. And the reason why I like this was, you know, we had that conversation in the uh, Ghost in the Shell episode about post-humanism. How could I forget? And and both of us were talking about whether it was transhumanist or post-humanist, even though both of us had only heard of post-humanism like 10 minutes earlier. And I hadn't (laughs) really got my head around what post-humanism is. But this sort of three-page resume of it all is the thing that really made me aware of, explained it in a way that I understood. And I think it will then also make sense of that conversation we're having earlier in that other episode. So basically then, do you want to know what post-humanism is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So summarise their summary for me. Okay, so basically up to now I've been really familiar with the idea of transhumanism, which is about humans becoming something different about improving themselves about uh, either through genetic engineering or through becoming a cyborg or through linking to ai or all those sorts of things and one of the one of the guys i've worked with a guy called stellark has referred to humans as being a combination of meat metal and code which i really like mm. the idea because there's our flesh side there's the very fact cyberpunk programmed yeah exactly it's the whole cyberpunk thing is quintessential transhumanism that you that you can't distinguish between those two things really so when i heard about the idea of post-humanism i thought well how is that any different and i the re, one of the things there's a guy called as a historian called fukuyama um who described transhumanism as the most dangerous concept out there but it's kind of like <laughs> post-humanism post-humanism heard this and went um hold my coat basically <laughs> or hold my beer because i think post-humanism actually is far more transgressive in a lot of ways the idea of transhumanism is we can improve what humans are and make them better and make them uh, make what they're capable of greater. And post-humanism says, well, what's so great about humans anyway? 
Mm, so the highlight appeals. Yes. So basic. I mean, if we were looking, I mean, it also brings in a lot of this um, systems thinking stuff. So it's basically just thinking of humans as part of a huger, bigger system, which involves animals. It might involve AI. It might involve. Uh, the, the environment, all these sorts of things, and not looking at humans as being the essential, the, the core part of that, or even an essential part of that. So it's how do we consider education, not as something that is geared around humans specifically, but in which humans are part of a big infrastructure of lots of different things. And I think that's a very different way of looking at what education is and what it can do. So on the whole, a lot of this sort of stuff looks at AI as an important part of an educational system. A lot of it also looks at, well, maybe we need to be teaching students to not be, to not look at humanism and humanity as the essential thing that everything's working towards. It ties in with things like the importance of climate change, about deforestation, about uh, animal rights and all those sorts of things, that humans aren't that special and maybe we don't need, we shouldn't be placing them at the centre of what we do educationally. And that's that's a hugely radical idea. I think that goes way beyond what transhumanism is. That sounds excellent. That's I mean that I, I that sounds yeah, I'm I'm hundred percent on board with this. This sounds this sounds amazing. Well I, yeah, maybe. I mean, yeah, maybe have robot teachers or maybe have, like I said in the previous episode, intelligent teaching assistants and all those sorts of things. But for me, I don't know if it's a step too far or not in that well, surely ultimately the point with, of education is to educate humans, is to put humans at the center of that kind of process. That, you know, it's been, there's this big push towards student centered education. And to come up with, well, not even human centered education, but just creating a system in which ideas get passed around, whether or not humans are involved or not. I'm not sure. I, I don't, wanna... I mean, from what, from what you said, it sounds like it's um, asking people to look kind of beyond the romanticism of, the human element of teaching, which is something that I know in education we are, you know, we're very, very guilty of. We we like to see ourselves as part of this big kind of beautiful journey towards enlightenment. But at the end of the day, it's about teaching people. And ultimately, we're teaching people in order to make life better uh, in one way, shape or form. And, you know, it's, uh, from, from what you said, it sounds like it's, you know, I don't, it's mechanistic the right word. But, you know, it sounds like it's, a renewed focus or at least a call to action to, to focus on that on that end it sounds sounds glorious yeah i mean these are the questions this paper asks it's what principles can help distinguish increasingly intelligent or representational forms of teaching assistant from teachers students and from the world around them so intelligent teaching assistants maybe um the fact that something's you know don't do a turing test on anything that you interact with because it doesn't matter if they're saying something intelligent or something useful, it doesn't matter if it's coming from a robot or a human being or a, an AI. It's it's just information, and you're just an information processor, and it's the physical materiality of what something is that's doing the talking is not of relevance, is kind of mm. what it's saying. What is the role of the teacher, the student, maybe even the human being within a com- more complex world consisting of social material and artificial elements, all interacting and perhaps inseparable from one another? And that's interesting because it's maybe you're teaching a system, not an individual person, and maybe that's a way to teach. And this whole idea of connectivism Ooh. that, you know, when you're learning, you're not learning singly, you're learning as a kind of 
gestalt mind or whatever. I don't know. Uh, does the work completed on our behalf and for our benefit by non-human instruments change the nature of knowledge and knowing? So actually, maybe something else could do the learning for us, and then we just draw on it. So that kind of machine learning, and hmm. do we need to think about it at all? And maybe a machine could just do it. And then uh, when a student uses smart tools to speed up substantially the process of writing an assignment, what are the long-term effects on such actions of the student, the learning process, or education? It's like, uh, I can't remember which novel it was, but the central character actually has trained an AI to write his papers for him, and he just then sends it off, and it just writes a, a journal paper. And I'm just thinking, oh, that would be great, <laughs> wouldn't it? But then, but then it's the machine that's done it. And why are we educating students to be creative people if actually they can just adopt some technology that's creative, and that then does the creating, and all they then have to do is direct that technology to do the creation for them? And post-humanism was said it doesn't matter because the creation still happens. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, what, where this helps, I think, our discussion in the, in the Ghost in the Tell episode is that I would see something like Ghost in the Shell being a conflict, and this is what probably was implicit in our conversation, being a conflict between transhumanism and post-humanism. So one is about transforming human beings, but they still say human, but post-humanism is about looking at what might exist beyond humanity or outside of humanity. And bizarrely, by coincidence, or maybe they listen to the podcast, the most <laughs> recent episode of Ghost in the Shell is about that very conflict between transhumans, the cyborgs, and the post-humans. So we predicted the way that the, the, the yes, season three of Set Stand in the Standalone Complex would, would evolve. So how would you apply this, uh, this summary, this concept of post-humanism to Red Dwarf? Okay, what's great about this choice is that actually I would see Red Dwarf as one of the great post-humanist texts because what we've got there is we have Dave Lister, who's the last human being alive. There are some more human beings come back at some point in season eight, but by season nine, they all seem to have disappeared again. So for the vast amount majority of the run, he is the last human being alive. The uh, Rimmer, who's the hologram, is sort of a transhuman because he's dead and then revived as a hard light hologram. As a hologram, yeah, and and his, his mentality is stored on a computer somewhere. There's Crichton, who's a robot, and so obviously not human at all. And then there's Cat, who's the hyper evolved three million after three million years of evolution cat being. And so of the four central characters, only one of them is human. And even he's slightly inhuman because, first of all, he's his own father because he goes back and reproduces himself. And secondly, he's got two appendices when he's born, which is really odd, not completely inhuman, but it's not quite normal human. So he's got some differences as well. And they're in a universe which is entirely post-human because they never come at... They, once or twice come across another human who's been frozen or something like that, but they don't last very long, and they are very, very few and far between because on the whole, the, the galaxy is inhabited by genetically engineered life forms. And so Dave Lister exists as an oddity within this galaxy. He's the only human being alive. And, and for the so, most part, nobody really cares. No, no, it's not a big deal at all. And I was going to say my favourite scene from any episode is I think it's one from season 11 and it's Crichton talking to Lister and Lister's all feeling all upset and Crichton's going, you're thinking about them again, aren't you? And Lister goes, yeah, he says, you, you miss the human race, don't you? And I went, 
and he goes, yes, I, I can't, you know, I just, I just don't, I, everywhere I go, I look, I see the human race. And Crichton says something like, well, you know, they were never good enough for you, Dave. They never, <laughs> Mr. Lister, sir. They, they rejected you, didn't they? They never let you in. They never made you a part of them. You need to move on. You need to forget the human race. You need to find another species. <laughs> and I just think that is, yeah, how post-human can that is? That's all it is to him now. It's a, it's a species that has gone that he was never really a proper part of and misses, but it's time to move on. And there are better species out there. And that's the essential message of Red Dwarf, I would say. Yeah, I'd agree with that, actually. So, yeah, so... Uh, yeah. And okay. The, so. Uh, yeah. Okay. So those are. The so, in, can can you can you summarize your your thoughts on that? I would say that yes, posthumanism takes transhumanism one step further. It looks at humans not being the focus of what we're doing. That we need to be educating students to look outside, putting humans first. That we're not putting humans first as educators, but seeing humans as part of a system of robots and AIs and other things. And I'm not sure if that actually then undermines the essential idea of what education is about, which is essentially humanist. So transhumanism probably maintains humanism, but posthumanism moves away from it. And I think that's perhaps a step too far, but I need to think about it more. That's my summary. I think not a step far enough. We are walking <laughs> snacks of meat, water, and disappointment. <laughs> Ugly bags of mostly water. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, so um, uh, shall we move on to mine? Yes, let's do esports, and then we'll come back and talk a little bit about AI. Yep, sure. Okay. Okay, so um, so I picked out the article on esports um, mostly because I'm a big gamer nerd and I like esports. Uh, it was the initial impression I had for my first run through was that it was one of those articles written by somebody, you know, the, the classic academic looking at video games. Where imagine if you can a game played through your castle, uh, your um, cathode television tube. <laughs> Pong was the first of these, but I actually sort of on second read, um, my thinking was actually that it might have been written just to account for those people yeah. um, for whom it would be like, what is video game? Um, but yeah, it's uh, basically looking at esports, a very broad look at esports and the um, associated flim flammery and its impact on education. So they have potential impact medium attached to this. Um, but I kind of, there's a couple of things I um, gravitated to in the article. The first is that it legitimizes esports as a form of, or a part of kind of education, mm-hmm. or at least it's having a place in education. So they uh, reference studies um, where it was supporting PE um, to uh, like, you know, for your, sort of your classic Wii Fit games and things like that to support sort of basic fitness, but also how skills and principles learned or practiced in esports also transfer into the inverted commas real world. So, you know, your teamwork, communication, problem solving, coordination, mathematics, that sort of thing. In fact, there's a line here, a combination of cognitive, motivational, strategic, and mimetic skills developed through different types of esports, which I thought was really lovely. Mm. Uh, And just kind of basically having it build towards both digital literacy, but also world literacy. Because, I mean, I know Mark and I have spoken about this before, but experiential learning can happen in virtual worlds because it's you know from a brain perspective it's the same bits of your brain being tickled the big stab for me with this particular bit was that it legitimizes esports and kind of gaming and this kind of environment in the learning process 
there's another line here. Uh, Therefore, esports can not only be seen as a fun activity to support learning in content areas, such as sport and PE, but also a pedagogical basis for supporting digital literacy, socialization, and teamwork, which I thought was really great and sort of nice to see in a mature article on the subject. Yeah. Uh, I guess with any games, it's difficult. When it fits in with the curriculum, they're great. Sometimes it's tricky to get them to fit in. It's sort of trying to fit a square peg into a round hole, which, mm. which would make a good video game anyway. <laughs> but do you know, it's it's if there's a happy accident between what you're teaching and what a game that exists out there, like a, what they call COTS, commercial off-the-shelf games, then it kind of works. But where you have to develop one, or where uh, then that's just so takes so much time and so much money that that's tricky. And when and when you're trying to make something that doesn't quite fit, then it doesn't work. But when the two can, you know, work in concert, then that's then that's brilliant. If you're talking about curriculum-based stuff, and of course, not all education has to be around a formal curriculum anyway. Yeah, and that's the big bit for me. I mean, it's where, for example, things like logic and problem solving come mm. in, because there's a lot of games that rely very heavily on that and definitely kind of develop and tickle your skills as you're doing that. And it's that's a, a big life skill. But I wouldn't, you know, if somebody made a logic and problem-solving based educational game, I can guarantee it would be the worst, most hateful game in existence. But there are some amazing games out there at the moment. Yeah. Uh, Portal 2 would be my pick, for example, on a wonderful game just to just to stimulate your brain. Think about problem-solving, pathing, physics. It's, um, you know, that's just plucking one um, out at random. There's lots of uh, digital escape room style things which are around problem-solving, um, handling digital information, that sort of thing. It feels like there's a lot of skills that you can legitimately exercise and develop in that environment. I mean, I learned a lot about history from playing Civilization. I mean, not exactly this is how <laughs> – I mean, not exactly historical events because, of course, it's different. But basically what you're doing is you're playing out history time and time again in different kind of parallel histories. But the same things happen again and again is that, you know, when you've got law court when a civilization gets a certain size you need ways to uh enforce laws and so you need courtrooms and i'm not saying that all of the principles are exactly the same but it does teach you to see civilization as in general as a as a process not as mm. a series of events but as a series of things that need to emerge in a and will emerge in a particular way because they're required by by societies at a certain level and in particular ways and that's quite interesting and i've seen some papers james g writes a lot about this and kurt squire as well they've done some really interesting stuff on using games in the classroom but you know the issue is always that you have to take the students so far through the game before you start learning stuff that sometimes it's not it's going back to that law of faff that we talked about in episode mm, yeah. two, uh, part two of the trilogy is that there is so much stuff that you need to get through to get to a point where you can start learning things that unless you know you are going to get there and realize the value of it, it's very difficult to motivate students to go all the way through the whole faff bit before they get to the payoff. I, I completely concur. I mean, I, I am an avid gamer, but at no point would I, for example, encourage uh, module teams to pick up Portal 2, <laughs> even if it perfectly, even if they were teaching portal-based physics. Yeah. I would really struggle to recommend that they get everybody set up with a gaming console and you know take them through because you know people have people people are coming from different directions. But another thing that this article kind of 
just uh, points out is that universities themselves are now uh, going back to the word legitimizing, but um, now recognizing esports as a sport. Yeah. So universities have esports teams. Uh, the Open University, I think, did a call not too long ago for one of its esports teams. I know there's a couple around the country who have very big esports teams. And in a world where you know darts is allegedly a sport, I think it, it's great to see um, team-based sports like uh, sort of a League of Legends has a huge mm. uh, UK base. Um, Overwatch did up until the China scandal. Haven't checked in on that one for a little while. Uh, Counter Strike. You know, there's some really big uh, campus-based uh, esports things that have been going for decades in some ways and in some places, um, and it's really great to see that they are being uh, recognised as 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 a legitimate sport and a legitimate way of of people developing. And it's still worthy of study in itself as well. And so, courses that actually aren't necessarily saying, "Okay, now everybody isn't going to play Overwatch for the next three weeks," but if you could say, "Well, if you are interested in," esports as a dis- as a subject we've got this module on it and we will assume that you're all playing a game at some point in parallel with doing this course and now we would like you to bring that experience into the course to talk about it i mean that's huge that's would work really well and in fact in the university of wolverhampton i think it was like 10 years ago or something they had a module on dungeons and dragons and because awesome. Yeah, because you learn so much about cooperation, about creativity, about all those sorts of things. And it got roundly mocked in the local media because it's like, well, look at these kids, these nerds playing games. Go, yeah, but you're getting so much from this about uh, so, about forming social bonds and all this sort of stuff. And let's examine what goes on. And, you know, our very first episode of uh, Pedagogzilla was on the communities of practice around World of Warcraft. Oh, yeah. But outside of the curriculum, and going back to that, Exagaming, about 10 years ago, Exagaming was huge. I did. Uh, I was doing this, this project and between some engineers at Warwick and some med- medical people at Warwick, and they wanted to develop some games to teach medicine. And one of the things that came out of that in the, the kind of case studies I was looking at was a huge amount of things around DDR in exercise. So it was oh, health- Dance Dance Revolution. Yeah, I took – and the thing was is that DDR – as a health-based activity, was so embedded within the whole medical community that I had to read about four or five papers <laughs> before <laughs> anybody <laughs> bothered to explain what DDR stood for. So I was thinking, is it sort of, you know, I, I know the fact they stood for Dance Dance Revolution was, was a complete revelation because I assumed it was some medical term or whatever. Um, but Dance no, Dance was... Revelation being the sequel. <laughs> yeah, that would be great, yeah. Um, so and yeah and I, and they were finding that, that that it was just promoting so much more health. I mean, obesity was a problem even back there amongst young youngsters, and it's bigger now. Mm. <laughs> They're bigger now. Um, yeah, and and it was some, it was overcoming a lot of those issues. So I mean, the health, the mental health benefits of game playing as well is really interesting. Oh, they definitely keep me sane. I, I, I would have gone postal years ago if it wasn't for video games to um, to let out my violent urges. Yeah, well, um, my worst weekend during the lockdown was I just spent the entire, I spent 48 hours, no, 36 hours altogether playing um, Skyrim. <laughs> so it was you. like, and it was this lifesaver, it really was. And it's nice to get out in the fresh air as well. <laughs> I, I genuinely feel very sorry for anybody who's not a gamer during lockdown Mm. for me this has been a wonderful opportunity to get through my back catalogue i've had a lovely time getting through some of these games um sorry just to return to the sport aspect yeah a bit um so just um with kind of the legitimate title of sport being kind of you know put around the shoulders of esports now one of the 
as all the other things that the article references is the data side of things, um, which I think, you know, big data in sport is kind of, big data in sport is big money, but it's also a good example of um, data use and interpretation in practice. Mm. Because of the nature of video games, it's, um, and particularly esports, they are designed almost to produce big data. And there is a huge amount that comes off. I mean, I use a couple of services for one of the games that I play. Uh, to kind of interpret my own and my friend's match data um, to to work out, which I'll, I'll get onto in a little bit. But the fact that they, this can be used then in legitimate, I'm using, I'm using the word legitimate, but this can be used in, um, for example, courses on data interpretation um, or data analysis, data handling, that sort of thing. This is a um, this is a, a solid real world example gathered, you know, using live data, which people can then use and 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 play with, and they don't even need to be playing the games. That's um, I, I think that's very very exciting and of course there's another of the chapters in the innovating pedagogy report is on the ethics of using data which is probably also worth a read therefore in connection with that really oh i should i should Mm. i mean if we're talking about mental health there's one of the best videos i've seen on the benefits of esports for mental health is by my cousin's youngest son um, so, because both of both of my cousin Pete's kids, well, they're not kids anymore; they're in their twenties, are professional esports commentators. So they have a channel about League of Legends each, and one of them, Fox Drop, the younger one, was going through huge issues with mental health issues, and it was chronic fatigue syndrome, and mainly around when my aunt, his grandmother, died, and he worked through a lot of that and has really benefited hugely from he now goes out the house he travels well he can't travel at the moment but he used to travel internationally to these conventions and if anyone has any concerns about the value of gaming then we'll i'll try and track down the video i'll put a link in the show notes yeah it's worth a look Uh, you need you need a few tissues because it is quite moving really i like yeah it had effect on me but then of course his family so it would um so yeah so i think that was that was uh that's all I've got to say on that. Uh, the other big thing in the article is just talking about Twitch, mm-hmm. which is, for those who don't know, it's a a video streaming platform most commonly used by gamers. Uh, weirdly, originally just used for people to stream their lives. It wasn't very successful with that, but then people started streaming video games on it. But anyway, um, and looking, or at least discussing, some of the, the potential pedagogic uses of it. So basically how the platform has developed from just people sharing games to also kind of starting to do instructional stuff so people are using it as a teaching platform indirectly i know for the games that i follow um a lot of streamers aren't just playing the game in front of you but they're explaining to you what they're doing and why and i think it's become increasingly a hook particularly amongst um sort of high-ranking professional players in esports to do these streams and simultaneously provide kind of instructionals and how to's and top tips and things because it's it's a big draw for the channel it's kind of uh, the the note I had here was it's essential. It's view Darwinism uh, in the Twitch and YouTube world, in that people are basically being driven to education because it's you know it's a uh, it's added value to people who are visiting your stream. And in that environment where it's a very crowded marketplace amongst um, sort of uh, all of the the streamers, even just you know in League of Legends, in that environment they are then having to provide the best content. And I think people go to the people who they find the most interesting, the most entertaining, and who they feel like they're getting the most value from. Um, so these people who are not always perhaps natural educators, I think, are adopting very good teaching principles uh, in the execution of it. I know a couple of the guys that I follow 
online. Um, we'll be playing through a game, sort of demonstrating what they're doing. They're explaining um, why they're doing it, uh, talking about underlying methodologies. They'll be giving you little hints and tips as they go through. And that's just while they're playing a game. I mean, it's absolutely staggering to me. Well, that's how my cousin Pete's two sons got involved in that whole esports commentating was by having YouTube channels in which they would record some of the Twitch stuff. And the, I think it was a Twitch stuff. I don't know. Anyway, recording the games while they're playing them and providing hints and tips. And the younger one of the two has got well over a million subscribers to his YouTube wow. channel. Yeah. I mean, I would say, should we give him a plug? But let's be fair, it doesn't work that way around <laughs> at all. <laughs> oh, fair play to him. My God, I need to, I think I've followed him before on your, on your recommendation, Fox. Oh, okay. So anyway, um, I've blathered on about this article for long enough. What, uh, how does this apply to Red Dwarf? Well, there is one particular episode uh, in fact, there's a couple of episodes where they sort of they touch on gaming, but there's one particular one which is one of my favourites, which is Gunman of the Apocalypse. Uh, it's the third episode in series six, and basically it is uh, the gang uh, run into some simulants. They get infected with a horrible virus, and they have to go into the AR machine in order to save Crichton, who's developing an antivirus, um, and fight the virus in kind of a western, essentially. Uh, I guess that's uh, sort of a very wobbly way of filming it and i found a brilliant bit of trivia for this as well which i just really have to share with you Mm -hmm. which is um so they've got this huge section that's set in like in a western basically and you know it's it's actually in a sunny place so it can't have been filmed in the uk it was it was filmed in the uk yeah there is this is bizarre because i was listening to the commentary there is an entire village they didn't create any of the sets there is an entire village in the east of england somewhere that is set up like that permanently for lawyers and solicitors and stuff like that to live out a fantasy of being a cowboy for a week oh my god that's amazing i know and it's they not many people know about it it was just so yeah but they found out about it and they used that as a setting for that particular episode but so this episode, it, this is like this is a great one because there's gunfights and mm. there's westerns and there's horses and all sorts. But yeah, during the filming episode, a Janet Street Porter was head of BBC Arts and Culture, uh, and she saw the script and she went, "No, this is not happening." <laughs> she sent out a memo to everybody on the production, uh, basically telling them to stop it immediately because she thought it was going to be too difficult to film, it was going to cost too much, and it was going to take too long. However, by the time that the crew had actually received the memo, they'd already filmed it, they'd already wrapped it, and they were in post-production. <laughs> <laughs> it just really tickled me. <laughs> but yeah, so my key argument with this is that in the episode, um, starts off with Lister, who's found this, uh, they've salvaged this augmented reality, basically a VR machine, uh, from a derelict ship. And he has been using it uh, to get off with video game characters. Um, the the classic line is grinding away day after day <laughs> like a dog that's missing its master's leg. That's the line. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, yeah. Got they found the groinal attachment, which mm-hmm. is horrendous. Um, and actually, yeah, comes to think of it, was a prediction of something that actually really exists now. But that's another. Um, <laughs> that's another episode. Oh, well, the episode on teledildonics. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a thing now. Um, so in the episode, he takes the skills that he's developed playing these video games because he's been immersed in them for, for quite some time, uh, something that the report legitimizes, and then he uses that expertise in the game environment to teach Rimmer and the cat how to interact with the world with a kind of a mix of sort of, you know, a bit of guide on the side, uh, just kind of like, you know, giving them some little hints and nudges, um, but also by demonstrating, you know, how sort of comfortable and swaggery he is in this world and how he's using his powers. Um, and under his instruction, they quickly acclimatize and they experience an accompanying boost in confidence and teamwork in the digital environment. So yeah, I think basically 
pulling in the sort of my my earlier points on uh, the esports article about how you know you are legitimately building up skills and teaching does mm-hmm. legitimately take place in the environment just sort of demonstrated in the episode yeah. um you've got uh you know it's uh, the activities legitimately building the skills because you know it's still experiential learning and knowledge transfer in that environment is as legitimate as if it was happening in a classroom because we've spoken we've spoken before about I keep I keep going saying we've spoken before about experiential learning, but by God, experiential learning still counts, <laughs> still counts in video games. God damn it! Oh yeah, it's the same sort of stuff. It's all experience. It just doesn't matter where it is. That's what simulations are all about. Yeah, and, yeah. but that was that was basically my 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 how I relate it. I just wanted to talk about no. that episode really. Yeah, no, it's episode. a good episode. I think it's a lot. Yeah. Uh, so, Mark, you wanted to talk about AI briefly. Well, yeah, because there's a chapter on AI in there, which is really interesting. And it talks about learning for AI, learning about AI, and learning with AI. And looking again, thinking again about Red Dwarf, the thing that AI observations and people writing about it and people analyzing it constantly fail to recognize is that most, is that AI is stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Every AI, I mean, this is the thing about um, the Red Dwarf AI, the, the fact that we've got Holly, is that Holly is a moron and just the most insane and stupid things in whichever incarnation he or she is. And I think that's a valuable lesson for anybody thinking about AI is on the whole, these AI things are just going to be complete idiots and maybe we shouldn't be putting so much trust in them. That's basically that's basically how I would link that chapter in Red Dwarf, and I think there's there's something very instructional from watching Holly's actions throughout the entire whatever he's, he or she is, and in every series. But I think well, she, well, he's gone AI senile in it, hasn't he? Yeah, because he's been on his own so long, really, and his IQ is now six. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, oh. so there we go. Uh, we we just have to watch out for the AIs because they're just not that smart, really. At the end of the day. When people say AI and they go, whoa, and then you go, AI is basically if statements, and they go, wait, what? Yeah, it's just like a series that. of if this, then that. Yeah. yeah. Ugh, terrifying. Okay, so um, we've, I think, done a pretty, I mean, I've done a very clumsy, Mark's done a very elegant job. Only because Perfect. I made it easy for myself by picking <laughs> the, the easiest of the chapters. <laughs> by uh, smashing uh, the Innovating Pedagogy Report into Red Dwarf. Um, I, I've had a lovely time doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, do we have any practical tips for people who want to use this in their own practice? Well, I think, well, you, I, I, post-humanism, it's still something to think about and still just uh, a kind of philosophical point to consider when you're constructing your teaching. I don't think at this stage I can see anything practical about it apart from it would inform any kind of critical pedagogy approach you're taking when you're designing learning. But it's one of those philosophical concepts you might want to consider. Hmm. I agree with that. I think with esports, um, I would just give all of your students uh, an hour a night to play the esport of their choice um, and punish those who don't. Those who go outside and play kickety ball uh, should get detention. No, no. Um, I think I would just I would I would treat esports in the same way as regular sports. I would very I would encourage people to uh, to participate in them, but also use them in examples, particularly for things like big data, teamwork, and communication. Um, I think they are no longer uh, kind of the joke on the fringes. It's a very much embedded part of uh, society and culture now. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And AI, 
Uh, yeah, don't place too much hope on it because it could just be completely idiotic. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'll uh, I'll wrap up the show then. So thank you very much for listening. Uh, you can subscribe to us on all of your favourite apps, feeds, iTunes, and at our website, pedagodzilla.com. You can also get in touch with us via Twitter. I'm at Pedagodzilla and Mark. I'm at Mark Childs. Mark is very active on uh, on the Twitters. Oh, I am uh, less so. <laughs> <laughs> Spent too yeah. much time on there now. <laughs> if you want to have an exciting debate, speak to Mark. Um, if you want to get a Simpsons gif uh, tweeted back at you three weeks later, then I'm the one to talk to. We hope you enjoyed the show and we'll see you next time on Pedagodzilla. Bye-bye now. Bye.